scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, although maybe we shouldn't call it 1 Corinthians because if you read through the whole letter, Paul had written them prior, and in between the two writings, they had written him. And the scripture that we begin with today begins with a little phrase, now concerning, because he's answering their mail. Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, for whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. Since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you who possess knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So, by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their falling, I will never eat meat, so that I may not cause one of them to fall." I'm going to go out on a limb and say this is not one of your favorite passages of Scripture. A good friend of mine named Richard Ward, who is a retired seminary professor, his area of expertise was performance criticism or performance of biblical texts, which is to say he would memorize large chunks of the Bible. I mean like the entire Gospel of Mark, for instance, and he would go to churches and he would do it from memory. And it was incredible. I mean, he wouldn't act. He didn't have on a costume. He would just, using his voice and his training, he would recite. And it was mesmerizing. Even the most boring passage was mesmerizing. As far as I know, Richard never did 1 Corinthians 8. I wonder why. <laughs> when I was in college... A bunch of us, as we came to faith and joined this church, we, we bought this scripture memory kit. I, I guess it was a kit. It, it just came with a bunch of cards, maybe 200, 500, I don't remember now. But each card had a different verse on it. And the idea was you would carry that with you in your pocket and until you had that one memorized, and then you'd go to the next card. And I don't remember how far I got. I do know I still remember a lot of the verses all these years later. But not surprisingly, there was not a single verse from 1 Corinthians 8. You heard it. It's about food offered to idols. Idol meat, to be more precise. We don't eat idol meat at our house. 
I'm guessing that at your place, like ours, every Tuesday, I think it's Tuesday, you get the little flyer from Price Chopper and Hy-Vee about what's on sale. I mean, we know we're going to the grocery store, and we know we're going to get bread and milk, maybe eggs, but we flip through those flyers in case, in case Bluebell is on sale. Now, Blue Bunny, Bluebell from Texas, the really good ice cream, or, or maybe baby back ribs to smoke for the fourth. But they never have idle meat. In fact, if you want to have some fun, next time ask somebody in the meat department. Ask the butcher. Uh, yeah, where, where exactly is the idle meat? Just don't use my name if you try it. I, I, I have a hunch that I know what you're thinking. This is the Lord's Day, a day to celebrate being in the presence of God. And it's the 4th of July, a day in which we celebrate our country's independence. And this passage doesn't check either box. So what gives? Well, it's possible it checks both boxes. But I have to explain a little context first, because the context is crucial. In Paul's day, the churches were largely made up of Jew and Gentile, and that caused its own tension, a kind of ethnic-religious tension. But when it came to food offered to idols, it resulted in a very particular kind of tension. And here's what I mean. People in the Roman Empire offered offerings, meat, etc., to idols all the time, to gods throughout the Roman Empire. It was a kind of insurance. You, you offer a, an offering so that your crops would grow, so that the rains would come, so that you'd have victory in war, so that you'd be fertile in your marriage. All kinds of things they offered these offerings for. And if after making the offering, if there happened to be some meat left, well, some of it was sold. Some of it was served in what we might now call a restaurant. Some of it was enjoyed at house parties, dinner guests, that kind of thing. But here's the deal. That would not have been true for the Jews. The Jews were monotheists. They, they didn't believe in all these gods. And so the idea of eating meat sacrificed to idols, well, okay, sure, no, what's the problem? But, but for the Gentiles, this was a problem. Eating meat sacrificed to idols would be like someone in AA going back to a bar with their drinking buddies. This was a problem. And so they wrote to Paul. Paul. What do you have to say about food offered to idols? What the one group expects him to say is that tell the other group there's no such thing. Come on, get with the program, grow up. But that's not what he does. Instead, he challenges the so-called enlightened group. Now, if you're just listening to the reading of Scripture, assuming you didn't fall asleep, there is an important dynamic that's missing when you just listen, and that is quotation marks. Scholars have kind of ferreted out as best they could that sometimes Paul is quoting them. For instance, early on when it says, all of us possess knowledge, it's in quotation marks. I think it could just as easily be translated, everybody knows. Could have been a bumper sticker on the rear of their chariot in the first century. Everybody knows. 
Everybody knows there's no such thing as an idol. Everybody knows there's no harm in eating meat sacrificed to him. Everybody knows I have my rights. Everybody knows. And to that, Paul says, well, knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. See, that was the bumper sticker on Paul's chariot. Love builds up. I love the line by Martin Buber, Jewish philosopher. You may have seen it. It's a little quote there at the beginning of the worship service. Spirit is not found in the eye, but between I and you. Spirit's not found in me. It's found in us. In fact, he goes on to say that the Spirit of God between us is not like the blood that's in our veins, which is only in my veins, and you have yours. It's more like the air that we breathe, that we share in common. What a powerful image. But you see, the thing is, moving from a text about food offered to idols to figuring out what that has to say for us, that is hard work. It just, you can't just put an equal sign and, and it just doesn't work. You, you have to figure out, what does this mean? It, it's not. It's not like the controversy over vaccines. Science is clear and anti-vaxxers are clinging to, to all these kind of conspiracy theories. And that, that's not the issue. The issue here, the dynamic at work would have to be something that is, that is neutral, but for whom one of the parties finds it offensive. Like, like if you have a Super Bowl party this next year and you invite somebody who's a vegetarian, should you only serve vegetarian dishes? And the one group says, well, don't be absurd. They can pick what they want. What's the harm? Well, if you're the vegetarian, you might feel differently. And as vegetarian friends might say, well, the harm is the animals that were slaughtered. You hear it? There's, there's this kind of neutrality, and yet it's offensive to the other. So, for instance, should a church like ours have a Black Lives Matter sign in its yard? One group says, absolutely, time to take a stand. And the other one says, well, yeah, except it kind of sounds to me like it undermines support for police, law enforcement. Or should a church like ours have a flag in the sanctuary? This is July 4th, and some people say, Soldiers died that we might have our independence. We should honor that. But others say, well, what about separation of church and state? And what about God being the God of all nations? So when you get home, take out a, a piece of paper and take a pen and, and write Paul a letter. Dear Paul, kind of like an advice columnist, we have a flag in our sanctuary, and I was wondering, Pretty sure he's going to write back and say, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You see, for Paul, everything he does is about unity. He's not so naive to believe that he can bring about unity in the Roman Empire, and maybe we shouldn't think that we can bring it about among the American public. But he is concerned that there be unity within the body of Christ because we're made in the name of a God who is unity itself and for whom we exist. But this is where it gets really complicated. 
I don't know, I, I think many of you have probably heard or read of Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink. He's a sociologist, and the idea is it's about how we know things kind of instinctually. There's some things we just sort of get a sense about, like the fire chief who clears the firefighters out just in time before the ceiling falls. How do you know? I, I don't know, he says. I, I just sort of had this sense. That's what, that's what Gladwell writes about. So then he, he tells this story about a psychologist who did a study. He showed students 10-second video clips of different teachers and had them evaluate based on 10 seconds. Then he reduced it to five seconds and had another group of students review and eventually down to two seconds with yet another group. And across all three groups, total agreement. But it gets even better than that. They had students who'd had these teachers the entire semester and their evaluations pretty much lined up. We're really good at this. But did you hear what I said? They pretty much lined up. They weren't exactly the same. Some of us are really good at estimating how many jelly beans are in the jar, and others of us are off by hundreds. Who among us is enlightened? Who among us has total clarity? In my mind, my worldview and my opinions they all hold together in this incredible, cohesive one. I mean, I've just got it all figured out. As long as I don't have to listen to anybody else's views, I've got this perfect worldview. But I don't. I just think I do. In chapter 7, the previous chapter, Paul is responding to another topic that they brought up. He says, now concerning, and it's about marriage and divorce. They'd asked him about it. But here's what I love. Just a few verses into that, he says, he has clarity on what God believes about X, Y, and Z, but he doesn't on A, B, and C. He, he actually says, not I, but the Lord. And then he goes, and not the Lord, but I. Now, if an apostle... The Apostle Paul is writing scripture and he comes to a moment when he says, yeah, I don't, I don't even know what God thinks about this. Well, then where does that leave us? I mean, if you want to memorize a verse, memorize that one. Some of you will remember me talking about this great story from Jewish lore. It's actually based in history, but there's a, a kind of lore twist. Uh, roughly before the time of Jesus, there were these two schools of Jewish thought, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai, and they, they kind of argued all the time over different matters of Scripture and views on God. It just went with the territory. But the lore is that there were a couple of times when the very voice of God spoke and settled the argument. And one of those times, God said, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai are both correct, but, but the school of Hillel's view is to be preferred. Well, the school of Shammai crowd cried foul. I mean, they're like, wait, wait, wait. If we're both, how is this possible? And God said, because when the school of Hillel gave their answer, their view, they first summarized the other view fairly and then voiced their view with humility and kindness. 
My mentor, Fred Craddock, used to tell a story on himself. He was a great progressive scholar, great thinker. He was always pushing the envelope, helping people who thought there were easy answers to interpreting the Bible. But he wasn't always like that. When he went away to college, he went to a conservative Bible college, leaning very, very far to the right. And so when in college he read Albert Schweitzer's The Quest for the Historical Jesus, he was aghast. It was clearly a bunch of liberal gobbledygook. And then he heard that Albert Schweitzer was going to be in Cleveland, Ohio. And so he purchased a bus ticket and made his way there. Now, if you don't know, Schweitzer was a Renaissance man. In addition to being a New Testament scholar and philosopher and author, he was a medical doctor and, and a concert organist. That's why he was going to be in Cleveland. He was helping to dedicate a new organ. But Craddock didn't care why he was there. He rode on the bus, and he had his copy of Schweitzer's book on his lap, and he was reading through it again and putting little notes in the margins. And he knew that after the concert, there was going to be a time of visiting with Schweitzer down in the Fellowship Hall. And so after the concert, he rushed down. He sat on the front row, and he had his book ready. And he was going to say, yes, on page so-and-so, you say this. Is that what you believe? Well, they waited, and eventually Schweitzer made his way in. He was carrying a saucer with a little cup of tea, and Schweitzer said, I really would like to stay, but the people in Africa are starving, and they're in such need, and I must get back. And then he turned to go, but, but then he turned back and he said, if any of you have the love of God in your heart, Will you come with me? And Craddock just looked down at his notes because there was nothing else to say. 